Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 129. It's Tuesday, August 25th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, guess what? The ball is different yet again. We'll talk about how it is different here in 2020. And we'll discuss hitters with improved strikeout rates this season, young relievers with potential paths to starting roles in the future, and several great mailbag questions as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Tuesday? It's going well, and I'm ready to talk some baseball. I, You know, we, there was a discussion last night on Twitter about how much we should wait, how well uh, a, a fantasy manager does in this season. You know, there are these metrics like, you know, in TGFBI, there's like a there's like an overall ranking uh, that's like a multi-year ranking. And some I think Smata fantasy baseball who who handles that uh, ranking was saying like maybe we shouldn't wait this year at all and i was arguing that we should wait at some uh, maybe less than exactly how long the season was compared to other seasons uh, just because it has been difficult but i do think that as much as the season has been trying i think it has taught me some stuff uh, about fab about team construction uh, i used to be all pitching on my benches and I have definitely gone over to more hitting on my benches as we've had these COVID uh, cancellations and just realizing how hard it is uh, to always field as many plate appearances as you'd like. So if I've learned from this season, I feel like it uh, says that this season was worth something and that, uh, you know, we're all out here playing. I, I feel like it, do- it does mean something. And I'm not sure it means as much as a full season, just because there are so many things that you could just paper over in a long season and be like, oh, that was just a bad stretch, whereas in this season, it'll turn into a player, a value killer for a player. Um, so it is not a full 162, but I, and I've had some difficulty playing this year. Like, it hasn't been as fun as usual, right? Yeah, I've found that it's not as fun as it has been in the past because of the attrition caused by players being sick, games being postponed, and then injuries being up as well, right? You you turn the injuries up from 5 out of 10 to 10 out of 10, that just makes everything really frustrating. I mean, even when you have weekly pickups, it doesn't feel like you're making enough moves, that you have enough opportunities to make moves in those leagues to even offset your absences. I had a league, made moves yesterday, had everything all lined up, or made moves on Sunday, thought I was covered, Monday rolled around, I didn't even have a full lineup. That was literally the day coming out of Fab, which you almost always have is, a full lineup coming out of Fab. I mean, that was the whole point. Yeah, like I don't think that's a you're a bad player sort of thing. I think that's just this is a weird year, and it's just really hard to find enough at bats and enough innings to offset all the absences. And I do think the balance of hitters versus pitchers probably needs to be more even this year. Multi-position eligible guys are always. So helpful when you have them, and I think we've never really had a great way of waiting what that means during draft season. I think we've often talked about it as more of a tiebreaker. We're looking at two similar players or maybe plus $1 if we're talking about auction values. And I wonder if there's more there. If there's something to be said for having more versatile players, especially in this season. But I wonder if coming out of this year, we're going to see a little more of a premium placed on the guys who carry eligibility at two or three positions entering 2021. Yeah, I was just looking at labor and my God, Steve Gardner is number one again. I think, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, he won both. He's just a legendary fantasy player. And 
the weirdest thing was I was like, I don't, what is, why is this team good? And then I came to David Fletcher's name and I was like, I just having David Fletcher in labor, he has like eight eligibilities. You know, it's just like, you can just put him wherever you need him and get batting average and get playing time. So I do think those multi eligibility guys are going to be more helpful in the future. And that, you know, I've always wanted to have like one of those guys in labor because of how shallow the roster is. And I've got Daniel Robertson, who I'm hoping will play some in San Francisco. Um, and that'll be useful to me. But Daniel Robinson is no David Fletcher. <laughs> He's not. David Fletcher hitting for a little more power this year. It's not like the average exit velocity is way up. But seeing him hit a few home runs to go with that good batting average, with that high volume of playing time, with that versatility, uh, it's made him a really nice, pretty late round pick or, or cheap auction buy in a lot of formats. I'm looking at my NL Labor team right now, and this just makes me laugh every time I see it. I have four pitchers out of nine with ERAs below one, and I have three pitchers out of nine with ERAs above five. So, uh, you know, my ratios are actually not that good because it's mostly my relievers. It's Hayter and Kenley Jansen mm-hmm. uh, and Lucas Sims and Devin Williams who are all you know, helping with the ratios, which is good, but I, I'm not getting enough innings because I'm running four relievers out there right now. And then I have, you know, Lynn Bloom and Descafani. Uh, and Ross Stripling, who've all had some major blowups at some point this season, all in my rotation. And I think that league, as we've talked about before, is really challenging because you can only remove a player from your active lineup if they get sent down or if they go on the IL. Otherwise, you have to cut them. And there was no point prior to their respective blowups at which I would have considered cutting any of those three starting pitchers. So my only hope in rallying back is that they just get back to being the guys that I expected them to be all along, and then I'll just make up a lot of ground in the ratios categories over the next few weeks. I guess, but you know, it's also time to cut bait. I, I just cut Michael Fulmer because I need to get some saves. I got Peter Fairbanks in there, and Fulmer. You know, I looked I actually looked at DRA over on Baseball Prospectus, and Fulmer's DRA deserved run average is around nine, um, whereas John Means's was like three point nine. So. You know, I respect both of their stuff, and I think that long-term, both of them will be decent, useful pitchers. But in this season, Michael Fulmer coming off of Tommy John surgery uh, and just showing such poor results and apparently deserving them, uh, you know, I had to move on. And the other thing is, like, you know, I may not have been aggressive enough in FAB in the past. This year, I went full bore on the aggressiveness, doing the whole Dylan Carlson and Joe Adele gambit and other things. Uh, I think my average amount of FAB left across the leagues where I do that is like probably around 8%. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a tough way to play it. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm in dollar days already for the rest of the season. <laughs> I've got a couple like that too, but it's definitely not the strategy I've used the most. I've tried to be aggressive. I've tried to spend at about double the clip that I would normally spend at because I don't want to sit there at the end of the season and I have 20 or 30% of my budget left. That's not going to help me, right? So if I think Brad Miller is the best available hitter in my league, I'm going to spend a lot more than I ordinarily would on Brad Miller. Or if I think that Casey Mize or Tarek Skubal are going to be fine over the, what's left of the season, I'm going to push up the bid from 10 or 15% to 15 to 20%. I'm going to go that extra mile to get what I need. So you know, I think that's all going to be fine because... What's going to be different about the end of this season, at least what I expect to be different about the end of this season, 
without September call-ups, we're not going to have a bunch of new players entering the pool at the end of the year, right? Without roster expansion late, without the contending teams just turning to a wave of new players for the final month, there's not going to be as many interesting players to bid on in the final few weeks. That's my expectation. That's my hypothesis at this point. And I would I would add to that that I think that the general arrow on the trade deadline is down. I think it has to be just because of the parity in the league that we've talked about yeah. and the lack of quality players available for the non-contending teams. Like we already saw the Phillies make that deal. That was Friday night with the Red Sox. Brandon Workman, Heath Hembry are gone. Clearly the Red Sox are going to move a few other players. I mean, Mitch Moreland, it's a nice platoon bat, but he's not going to be a guy that changes a lot of fortunes in fantasy leagues. If he crosses leagues, sure, it's nice to get a player that enters the pool who brings uh, steady value like that. But I mean, in terms of who replaces him, it's probably going to be a combination of players who pick up those those extra plate appearances too. So I, I just think there's there's going to be a pretty limited number of useful late season pickups, fewer than usual. And normally I do think the end game of the season, if you're really active in fab, I think that's where you can get a bit of a leg up. It's kind of a it's a waiting game in some ways and you got to be patient and you got to be really good about following the news and figuring out, you know, what's going on with some injuries because what happens in a typical season, injured players don't necessarily go on the IL and we're left to guess as to whether or not they're actually coming back. I think the example last season was Jose Ramirez. He had that bad cut on his hand. If you remember seeing that picture on Twitter and Instagram, it was pretty gross and it was a multi-week injury and it looked like he was done for the year, but he came back, I think, for the final week or final two weeks. And there were some leagues where he was picked up for a couple of bucks in fab. And he had a good finish to his season. That made the difference. That won leagues for some people. Yeah, but like I think, again, the arrow on, on a situation like that might be down because it's just like, would Jose Ramirez, like if the Indians were not going to the postseason, would... Jose Ramirez come back this year like I think most people would just be like nope I'm done that this season's too weird and the other thing that I think that points the arrow down on trade deadline that we just haven't mentioned yet I just wanted to say is that I, I think that most player executives most uh, front office executives are risk averse and this season just screams risk so if you know if you were considering a deal where you send Christian Pache or is that how you say it? I should, yep. I should, I should check all before we start, but I didn't think I'd say his name today, but like if there was a, if there was a reason to, to trade Christian Pache for Mike Clevenger, maybe a deal like that could happen because they're both long-term assets, but the closer you get to it being a short-term asset, the more a team this year, I think is just going to be like, nah, dude, you're not, I'm not going to give you much for, you know, the next three, four weeks, like it's just too weird. Yeah, I think I've noticed that uh, in our circles when trying to make deals in keeper and dynasty leagues, there are players trying to win the league this year because there are still monetary prizes available, flags fly forever, but the number of buyers in most of my leagues is smaller than it should be when you consider how soft every category really is in a rotisserie league. You could still have a team get hot and close a 20-point gap between now and the end of the season pretty easily. You could probably close a 30-point gap in standings points in some cases just because everything is so bunched together. And in some of the negotiations I've had, it's been a response of, well, that would make sense in a normal season, but I can't give you that much in terms of future value for a rental in a shortened season. And I just think, like, you could. You're just choosing not to. Uh, 
so I do think that's just the, a way that our minds work. It's a way that teams are going to look at this. They're going to say, you know what? I might as well just hang around in the race. I might as well keep these guys unless there's a real like dire penny pinching situation and getting every last dollar off the payroll for the final five weeks is a priority. I think it is going to be a pretty underwhelming trade deadline uh, overall. Uh, let's talk about the baseball, though, because you had a piece that went up on The Athletic just before we started recording here on Tuesday. The ball is different yet again, and it's changing the way pitches move. So uh, as the uh, the headline suggests, uh, what do we do with this? Like now, now, how do we react? How do we account for the changes to the ball this time around? You know, I, I think of it a couple of different ways. I did not put this in the piece, but, you know, we've talked about it on here that Derek Cardi when he was making his projections, did not assume that he had that the baseball would have last year's ball. And so when he did the bat projections for this year, he regressed the 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 run environment. Basically he regressed the ball uh and had to project the ball, you know, as a separate factor. Um and I think that was really smart to do because what happens? We've got a ball right now that's acting like the 2018 ball. It's not acting like the 2019 ball, which is the most aggressive, hitter-friendly ball that we've seen, maybe ever. Um, and so by acting like the 2018 ball, there's less drag. Home runs per fly ball are down. Offense is down a little bit. And um, on top of that, uh, pitchers are moving more. So that's a, that's a, that's a positive for, for the pitchers in a couple different ways. Um, it may not be so easy to see given the way pitchers are being used. Um, and it's also hard to kind of be like, oh, this pitcher has more movement this year. It must be from the new ball because we're also doing pitch design and player development at the same time. And we're changing those. We're trying to each, each of those pitchers is trying to actively change the way those pitches move. And so it's very hard to even sort of match player to player and be like, oh, uh, this moved and more and this moved less because of the ball, you know? So uh, in the end, in the piece, I was kind of like, well, I think the ball's been changing all the time, you know, going back and we've just been able to measure it now. And for the most part, player development executives are kind of throwing up their, their, their hands and saying, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. So I basically just aim for the middle and, and try to uh, do my best with what I have. And I think that's what fancy players have to do with this caveat of like, maybe it's a good idea to kind of uh, project the run environment to kind of regress the run environment and not just assume that you're going to have the ball you had last year. The other changing variable too, as it pertains to results that pitchers are getting is the approach of hitters. And I think one of the more fascinating graphics in the piece is the hitting the hard ones higher graphic. If anyone's looked at the piece, they'll know what I'm referring to. It's a league average launch angle in degrees on balls hit at 95 miles per hour or harder year over year since 2015, and it's pretty steadily increased. The only drop, I think, was from 17 to 18. And in 2020, thus far, that average launch angle is as high as it's ever been for hard-hit balls, which has to be almost entirely a reflection of how the league is trying to attack pitches collectively, right? It's not just the twins. It's everybody really trying to hit the ball in the air more consistently. And it's clear that it's happening. So a lot of damage is being done because hard hit balls at 95 with a 14 degree launch angle, as we're seeing in 2020 are going to lead to a ton of home runs. Yeah. And the, and the, the further you push that, the more risk you have in like so the twins are kind of averaging around 20 
Um, and that means they're hitting balls at 25 and 28 and 30. And, you know, if the ball is super lively, you can hit like sort of like a 33 degree angle uh, pitch at 95 miles an hour and it'll go out even though it's kind of a sky ball. Right. And, um, you know, the, the further you kind of push that, the more you're at risk for the rug being thrown out, pulled out from under you. And I think that some people were worried that that's what happened to the twins in the playoffs last year is that the ball kind of changed. was dejuiced in the, in the, in the playoffs. Perhaps um, they used a mix of 2017, 2018 and 2019 balls. And all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like there were more warning track balls and the twins felt like, you know, uh, some of their power advantage was taken from them. Um, I don't, we don't actually know how true any of that is because we don't really have that, you know, uh, a total uh, transparency from baseball in terms of uh, what balls were used and, and um, how uh, how much drag they had in the in the playoffs. Um, we can get sort of surmise and, and, and make some guesses about what happened in the playoffs. But it, it is a bit of a Pandora's box. Now that we can measure this, now that we know that the ball has varied fairly widely since the beginning of 2015, we've had a ball that was mostly dead to one of the livest balls ever. Uh, this is within the manufacturer's specifications. Maybe those specifications need to be tightened because uh, this kind of variance uh, kind of makes your head turn. Well, it seems bad for everyone, right? I mean, like for, for pitchers, and Brandon Woodruff was, was quoted in the piece, it's like, some pitchers are getting more movement, but are they getting more movement because of pitch design and because of changes they're making, or are they getting more movement just because the ball is different and they're doing the same thing they're always doing, but the variable that's changed is a variable that's outside of their control? Yeah, and it's very uncomfortable. Uh, that's how I started with the Verlander thing that anybody who listens to this podcast has heard before, where Verlander uh, kind of you know shouted at me from the other part of the uh, <laughs> the clubhouse and made me recant all the all the knowledge that I had about the juice ball in front of all his hitters. That's, that's what's super uncomfortable about all this is just even talking to anybody. Because if you're talking to a pitcher about the ball, yeah, okay, you can get them to be like, yeah, it's juice. Well, what if it's a little bit less juice this year? And what if that means you get more movement? Are we now uncomfortable? Yes, because that talking to the middle of the Tigers lineup about how the ball was juice, that was super uncomfortable. Because I didn't want to make any implications about them hitting more homers. You know, maybe they did some hard work. Um, and maybe that's why, in the end, the player development executives also throw up their hands is because, like, this conversation is not going to go well with my players. So we're just not going to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just reading that that quote in the piece, and I, I got the vibe that it wasn't Verlander, like, in a very chill way, being like, yo, Eno, come over here. No. Because you. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, guy, Verlander's not very guy. chill. I mean, you can tell you know, what he's no. like. <laughs> No, he um, he does not seem particularly chill. It's not the same as you know, Darwin Barney yelling nerd across the clubhouse at me. <laughs> that was actually is way chiller than it might seem on paper. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, come over here and tell these hitters what you just said about the ball. That, yeah, exactly. that doesn't seem like a, a very comfortable situation no. to be in, in in the clubhouse. Uh, Dugout Mugs is a company that was started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs. They take the barrel of a baseball bat and turn it into a 12-ounce mug. Dugout Mugs are licensed by Major League Baseball, so you can get your favorite team logo laser engraved onto a Birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. They're perfect for the big game or to put on display 
or to even be the life of the party. And they make a great gift for any baseball fan. Go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use the promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and code MLB30. All right, you know, I saw something that really caught my eye. I think it was yesterday. I was looking at Kevin Biggio's player page. I don't know why I spend so much time looking at Kevin Biggio's numbers. It's probably because he's a weird player. We've talked about him maybe as much as any player we've discussed on the pod over the last year or so. And what really struck me with him was that his strikeout rate had improved a lot since last season. And I think my biggest concern with him was that he did strike out quite a bit in the minors. While he does draw a ton of walks, I just worried that with the strikeouts we saw in the past, especially in the upper levels of the minors, if he was going to be a 28 to 30% K rate guy and he was going to have trouble making hard contact consistently, I thought there was a good chance he was going to be a disappointment. Instead, he sort of followed the same script from AA to AAA between year one and year two in the big leagues thus far, cutting the K rate from 28.6% last year to 19.7%. This year, he's got six homers, he's four for four in stolen bases, so he's now 18 for 18 in his big league career. He's still a weird player. I'm not going to say we're, we're brushing this aside and just saying, oh, yeah, he's not weird anymore. He's, he's definitely a unique player because of the extreme fly ball approach and the likelihood that even with a low K percentage, his batting average probably won't be as high as it should be because of his batted ball types. But as you get more on Biggio especially, do you look at this approach and say, actually, this does work? Because when we were talking about him back in October and November, I was definitely more on the skeptical side than the optimistic side, especially for a guy that was pretty consistently in the 120 to 140 range in terms of his overall average draft position. Yeah, he seems extremely passive in the, the overall numbers that are a little bit confounding to me. How has he struck out less when he's swinging even less? You know, like I would have figured that maybe he'd swung more early in counts or something, um, trying to find evidence of that, uh, that he's swinging more early in counts. But, you know, with two strikes, a little bit of a little bit, maybe a little bit of extra aggression with with I mean, with no strikes. But, you know, I don't I don't know how Biggio is doing it, um, but I would have assumed, like I said, that he would have been more aggressive and kind of not fallen to called strike threes. Maybe he's stringing more with two strikes. Um, that's uh, that's and making some contact, but it's obvious that he has a decent hit tool, and it's obvious that he makes the most out of his batted balls, and it's obvious that he can run a little bit. So maybe we've cut, we've sold his athleticism short a little bit, and that really the entire, the only negative, the really the biggest negative about him is he's too passive, and that's what that's how he gets those strikeouts. Yeah, I mean, and that's somewhat correctable over time with experience. He's a little old, of course, for a guy that still hasn't played a full season's worth of, of big league games, but 22 homers and 18 steals in 127 career games, it's a really nice player. That's tracking close to a 30-20 guy, albeit with a, a low average, but with the kind of OBP that would steer him to the top of a batting order. And being at the top of that batting order in particular could be really good in terms of run scored. I mean, you mentioned the athleticism might have been something that we've slept on, he might be the kind of guy that is among the league leaders in runs scored at some point at his peak. So you put that on top of the power and speed and you know, look at him as a guy who's not a batting average liability necessarily, even if he's not an asset in that category. And that's a better fantasy player than I expected. Now, I think beyond Biggio, this got me wondering, 
who's improved the most so far with their K percentages. You ran a, a query before we started recording. So who are some of the names that popped up as the biggest improvers among hitters in strikeout rates so far this season? Well, it's a fun list. Um, you know, I just took last year's strikeout rate, um, this year's strikeout rate minus last year's strikeout rate. And um, the biggest improvers that have at least 80 plate appearances here are Brandon Lau, Aaron Hicks, Joey Votto, Kevin Biggio, Brandon Nimmo, Kyle Seeger, Bryce Harper, Trevor Story, Evan Longoria, Austin Nola. Like, for the large part, most of these players are having better seasons than they had last year. You know, strikeout rate is, is, is key. It's putting more lotto tickets in play. It's, uh, it also says something about your approach at the plate. Uh, for Brandon Lau, I think the, uh, mechanism of this improvement is pretty obvious um i just he had some crazy ass splits last year he's horrible <laughs> against lefties last yeah, year not just so like bad. bad but was it and i'm not exaggerating did he have a 55 percent carry yeah. against lefties last year i found it here he had a 2.9 percent walk rate and a 52.9 percent strikeout rate against lefties I mean, he did okay I mean, I've never really play, seen that before. Yeah, <laughs> 52%. So uh, this year, in 2020, uh, his strikeout rate against lefties is 14%. I mean, it's too much. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's too far. It it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's mind-boggling to go from 52% to 14% against strikeouts, I, against lefties. I would say that Lau wasn't ever as bad as those splits. And he's not as good as these splits. And I think this is uh, the sample size problem, right? Yes. Like Cardi all the time says that there's no such thing as a lefty masher when it comes to like a righty who crushes lefties just because the samples are so small that the math doesn't really support it. Yes, all righties are better than lefties in general. But like to say that some person mashes lefties more than other righties, that's I think that's a, a part of the a key part of what he's saying, too. Right, but this is kind of an offshoot of that conversation, even though we're talking about lefty-lefty, where it, the opportunities for Lau this season and last season are still so few that you can't look at the 50-plus percent from last year or the sub-20 percent this year in that split and say, it's meaningful, this is who he is. Like, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably high 20s, low 30s, something along those lines, and then you have to get inside the head of the Rays. How much are the Rays going to let him play against lefties if they have everybody healthy and available. That's the other part of this, too. If you want a closer estimation of his true talent, I would look at his line against righties this year, which is still excellent, but gives you a better sense of who he is. 12% walk rate, 26.5% strikeout rate. Uh, I think you know that's a better uh, way in. 274 average, 361 OBP, 589 slugging. Maybe the slugging's a little aggressive, but he's a guy who hits the ball hard. Uh, and, and is good at lifting the ball. So I would say that um, I believe that he is a 260 hitter that could hit 30 home runs in a full season. And he walks a little bit too. So, you know, he's not going to be buried in the batting order either. Yeah. So I, I do. He's a very good player. I do like that about Lau too. Yeah. The, I mean, he was affordable in drafts this, uh, this season. So definitely a guy that's going to be on some winning teams, I think, just based on what he cost and what he's been able to do so far. I think you're right. If you're expecting 304 the rest of the way, you're expecting a little too much in that batting average category. But because he hits the ball hard, because he's hitting the ball more often, there's definitely a lot to like in the underlying numbers. There's something to be learned here, too, I think, which is that not every player's early 
and this is something we can transition out of later, but this is something important to learn, which is just because a player is being platooned early in their career does not mean that that is a fait accompli the rest of their career. Especially if the team they're playing on is, is really good. Like think about like Michael Brousseau, yeah. who's the opposite of this. He's their guy who comes in against lefties and plays second base. You know, is he that forever or will he be traded to a team that will play him more often? Um, you know, at 26, do the Rays, if the Rays like do take a step back, uh, do they give him a full-time role? Do they give him Yandy Diaz's role at some point? You know, so there are different ways forward than it seems in the present sometimes. And this is true even when we're talking about a full season, but I would love to know more about what teams care about in limited samples. What what moves the needle for them internally and gets them to say, hey, let's give Brasso more time. Let's take the chance on Brasso over Yandy or whoever it is. And I think something like this could also apply to Taylor Jones in Houston. Like, What does Taylor Jones have to do in very limited playing time to possibly play his way maybe into the first base job next year. I heard our Astros writer Jake Kaplan talking about Yuli Gurriel is a free agent at the end of the season, so first base will be open. And Taylor Jones is one of those guys that in a world where Jordan Alvarez is healthy, you know, he has to go play first base. And if he only gets a handful of opportunities to play this year, even with Alvarez out, what would it take for the Astros to go, actually... This is our guy. We have our next first baseman already. We're not going to spend in free agency. We're going to go ahead and fill this vacancy with an internal option. I mean, it's the stuff that we talk about. I think that, you know, when when we talk about trying to evaluate pitchers in small samples, we talk about looking at the movement of their pitches and their velocity and their pitch mix. I think the same thing is true uh, for hitters. The The version of stuff for hitters is max ex- max exit velocity, barrel rate, uh, contact rates and swing rates. Those are the, those describe, uh, things, the process that they're undergoing. Uh, once you start talking about like ISO, slugging, OBP, those are all results. And those are all noisier because they involve the fielder and they involve the opposing pitcher more and they involve more sources of noise. But if you're just talking about, did this guy reach at a lot of pitches? When he did make contact, did he hit one really far uh, and really hard? And uh, uh, did he consistently put the barrel on the ball? I think those are the types of things that they're looking at. Yeah, and you look at Taylor Jones. He's 28th in terms of average exit velocity out of 512 hitters. you got to set the minimum to one batted ball event just to get him included. But in that really limited opportunity, he has hit the ball hard. The max exit velo is more like middle of the pack so far. Mm-hmm. But you look at this guy. I mean, he's 6'7", 225-plus pounds. 12 balls in play. I don't think you would. It's funny. The max EV thing is funny because you can't – I don't think you can use it in the negative as well as you can use it in the positive. If somebody guy comes up and hits a ball 115 miles an hour, you have to sit up and take notice. It's immediately meaningful. But if a guy hits 12 balls and the the most is 106, he may hit 115 the next time out. You know, <laughs> like there's still a, there's still chances for him. He's only put 12 balls in play. Uh, I wouldn't say that his max EV is. Um, we know everything about it. The Astros, for example, know much more about his max EV because they're also recording his max EV at the alternate site. Right. They've 
got a good sense for how hard he can really hit the ball. I think the answer to that question is harder than we've seen so far. Yeah. I think the the average exit velo kind of points to a guy that's going to have the ability to just scorch the ball when he gets a hold of one. So he's pretty interesting for keeper purposes, for dynasty purposes. Even if he's not playing a lot right now, I try to sneak him onto long-term rosters and just see, like, what are they going to do? There's a decent chance that he's going to play some sort of role in 2021, even if he continues to be more of a, a part-time guy uh, at this point in the season. This Astros team is just getting crushed by injuries. It has been just about everybody. It's kind of weird that Carlos Correa has been healthy and everybody else has been <laughs> too. Bizarro world. Oh, man. You know, uh, there's there's some funny other names on that list. I mean, I think Joey Votto, for example, is basically just in the death throes of his career. I mean, I'm sorry. That's a terrible way to put it. But, like, the power <laughs> is gone. And so what he's trying to do is get on base and prove to hitters, to pitchers, that he can make contact on anything inside the zone. So his swing rates haven't actually changed much. But the power is out of what's come. So instead he's just making, he, you've even seen when he practices that swing coming up, it's almost like a cricket swing. <laughs> you know, he does that weird little practice swing. I'm like, you're just trying to make contact on the inside pitch in a way that will go into play. Um, Nimmo is what I would have expected out of Bijou. I think Nimmo is actually fairly uh, comparable uh, to, to Bijou. Um, and again, what we're seeing is that he's just not, um, he's not swinging more. Uh, it must be, you know, in the shadow zone. If anybody wants to enterprising young researcher wants to look at it, maybe they're just getting better at choices in the shadow zone as they get uh, over time. Uh, but do you know, how much do you believe Brandon Nimmo's strikeout rate this year at 19%? He's been, uh, you know, above 26, 27% for most of his career. And there's no corresponding swing change. It's kind of, uh, f- flummoxing. <laughs> I think it is flummoxing. Is yeah, it's a good word. Uh, I, I think it is one of those things you could sort of believe in because it always made sense that he could bring the number down a bit. Mm-hmm. Now that's terrible analysis, but just looking at the way he judges the strike zone, looking and, at swinging strike rate. Yeah, it is strange that we don't see something in those underlying numbers that supports it. So that's why it's it's hard to fully buy into this much improvement. But I think it's interesting that his slash line right now in 2020 is basically the same as it was in 2018 when he was getting to more power for the first time. I think it was a wrist injury that he had around the middle of the season. wasn't really the same after that. Uh, so even if I'm not necessarily buying into Nimmo as a sub-20% K rate guy, I think the power he's showing on a per-game basis is real, and I think that would be a skill that I'm definitely investing in in the long haul and as we look ahead to 2021 as well. I mean, I think it's going to be a weird year. Kind of talked at the beginning of the show about stuff we're learning this season about our approach and things we're going to try to imply to next season. There's going to be just weird lines that our brains are not used to looking at, and I think we're going to have some really nice values in early drafts, especially before everybody sort of adapts to how well these numbers would have translated potentially over a full season. And Nimmo is the kind of guy, because you're not expecting to see a big power number anyway, if he finishes with eight or nine home runs and plays 55 games, that doesn't jump off the page, but that's actually really good. That's basically a high 20s, maybe even a low 30s sort of home run output when you start looking at that over a longer season. Yeah, and you know, it, his barrel rate is good. 
uh, best of his career so far. And we're talking about 66 batted balls. So, you know, we're getting to be able to talk about his barrel rate. Uh, his max EV has gone down over time. Just he's getting older. He's, you know, that's what happens with, um, with, uh, athleticism. But as he's lost a little bit in the stolen base and the athleticism, I think he's gained a better knowledge of when to swing. Uh, even if it's not immediately obvious what the improvement has been without a deeper dive, I would give him uh, like a 250-25 projection next year. I don't know how many stolen bases, like three or something, but like it'd be more yeah, about yeah, a handful. And in an OBP, like obviously uh, above and beyond that value. He's more Jesse Winker-like than we ever would have thought back five-plus years ago when those guys were both prospects. I think most people would have liked Winker better than Nimmo, but they're very similar players as big leaguers for me in terms of what they bring to the table. Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving with their Lawnmower 3.0 personal trimmer. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. And the Lawnmower 3.0 is a waterproof cordless body trimmer that makes it safe and easy. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts, including a travel bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC. All right, you know, let's talk about this uh, question that sort of simmered up from a mailbag question I received uh, a couple days ago. And... The question came from George. It was about Jonathan Hernandez and whether or not he has a chance to be a starter in the future. And I just wanted to broaden it out and say, you know, what does it take for a young reliever to become an option in the rotation down the road? So we'll talk about Hernandez specifically in just a moment. But as you start to broadly evaluate relievers, what characteristics would you be looking for if you're trying to find someone who fits that bill? Yeah, I think there's uh, three three parts. Uh, one is a history of starting. Um, I forget who that we looked at who just never started. Oh, Carlos Estevez, yeah, before the show, yeah. Because you, I think one is uh, multiple pitches. You can't just go out there and throw two pitches. I think you really need to have three pitches to, to be a starter. I know there are Denelson Lamets and but th- those are the exceptions. The rule is you need to have multiple pitches to, to turn the, the, the roster over. And a guy like Carlos Estevez has three pitches, but he also has just never started. So he's just, you, you in terms of stretching him out, it'd be something he'd never done before. It would be weird if Carlos Estevez started. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing is, um, so two pitches, a history of starting. And then I think there's a, a delicate relationship and it's hard to sort of just give you a number, but number of years since they started and why did they stop starting? You know what I mean? Cause like Birch Smith has multiple uh, pitches. Wilmer Font has multiple pitches. These guys have started in the past. Wilmer Fonts have mostly been opening situations. He's mostly a reliever at this point. Bert Smith is mostly a reliever at this point. I doubt any of them are going to start again. So it has something to do with how old they are, how long it's been since they started, um, and how many pitches they have. But um, we did come up with a couple names. Um, you mean like Matt Strom, for example, does have multiple pitches, but 
I mean, Seth Lugo is going back to the rotation, so I guess I'd put Strom on that list, but he's getting to the point where it's been enough years since he last started that, that I uh, don't believe it. But like, uh, Genesis, Genesis Cabrera, uh, started in 2018, uh, started 18 out of 20 games in the minor leagues in, in 2018. So, you know, Genesis Cabrera, I think is, is somebody that could start again. I don't know how excited I would be about that given the results in the minor leagues, uh, that he was starting, but I do have a name that I have discovered that I am excited about, and that is Thomas Hatch. Um, Thomas Hatch has a changeup and a slider. The velocity is good. And since he got to the Blue Jays, the ride on his fastball has increased tremendously. Uh, those three things, I think, give him enough uh, to be a starter. And he's not that far from starting and in the past, and he's not that far from starting in the future. Um, you know, it could be next year. It could be in a trade uh, he could start for the team that the Blue Jays, he could start for the Pirates this year because there's these rumors that the Blue Jays are going to trade for a starting pitcher. So, uh, you know, Hatch, I think, is is what we're looking for. Someone who has started in the recent past, who hasn't given teams an obvious reason why he can't start, uh, is still young enough and has three pitches. Uh, so that's that's my name for you is Thomas Hatch. Yeah, and I think for people looking for guys like this, they're looking for the best-case scenarios, maybe like Adam Wainwright 15 years ago where he got to the upper levels of the Cardinal system as a starter. Wow. started 41 games, I think, between 04 and 05 at Memphis. Wasn't getting great results and you know shifted into the bullpen because of the needs on a playoff-caliber team. Stayed in the bullpen in 20 or 2006 and then moved back into the rotation in 2007. And you know the rest is history. He's had a lot of success for a long time working as a starter, but it wasn't a straight line and there was a short-term need that he filled and eventually he went back to that long-term role. Hatch is a great name. I mean, I think the Jays have been kind of quietly trying to build up their young pitching. I think there was a piece on The Athletic about that. I forget if it was Caitlin McGrath or if it was Andrew Stoughton or if I'm just making something up entirely, but I just read something recently about all the Jays' young pitching that they've gathered from different places, Rule 5 and Small Trades and uh, it's a little bit better than you realize when you start to kind of dig in on some of the names that they have. Maybe not like frontline starter type material, but mid-rotation and back-end guys. And it's hard to find those those players if, if you you know are trying to trade. Like you, you really need to get ahead of the curve, and it seems like they could be. So I, I like that hatch pull quite a bit. And I think as far as Jonathan Hernandez goes, uh, he was a starter in the minors up through last season. And I wonder how much the need to bolster the bullpen was a factor in the decision to bring him up as a reliever again in 2020. You know, you look at the way the Rangers have used him so far. He made a couple starts late last season, nine appearances overall. All 14 appearances this season have come in the bullpen. He does flash the occasional changeup as a third pitch. I think he's throwing it a bit less this year than he did a year ago. And when you look at the velocity, He's averaging 97.5 on that fastball right now, you know, so you'd bring him down a couple of ticks in the rotation. Still He'd still be in that 94-95 range as a starter. Slider's good. If he can find that third pitch, I do think Jonathan Hernandez sort of ticks the boxes of someone that we could see getting stretched back out and possibly working as a starter in 2021. So I thought that was a pretty good observation on the part of, of listener George. Like, I think there's in deeper leagues, there's a good case for Hernandez if he's available he might already be stashed away maybe he's a good uh, low-end sort of trade target people might look at him as a staff filler reliever but his future might be back in that rotation let me add one one more uh thing that we're looking for and i think that jonathan hernandez actually fits the bill is 
uh, it doesn't have to be great command, but it has to be a lack of terrible command. <laughs> uh, I think Birch right. Smith, you know, other than the injury, that's the other thing is just terrible command. And we've seen with like Josh James, Josh James has multiple pitches. Josh James has started recently. Josh James had the opportunity to start this year. Josh James just did not have the command to make it work. And I do have that. It's not necessarily a rock solid finding that I would crow from the mountaintops, but I would say that I did have a finding that command is that there's a basically a command shelf and that that command is somewhat predictive of how many innings you get per appearance. Um, something like command plus. So me personally, it's going to take me a lot. And I mean like Tyler glass now a lot to, and, and Garrett Richards a lot to draft pitchers that have a sub 90 command plus in the future. Starting pitchers as starting pitchers. The not terrible command is important, yeah. as we have learned with Josh. Josh James is the poster child for that. Like, because he fits everything else we said before that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to kind of account for Josh James in this. And I, and I and watching Hernandez, I watched him against the A's last night. He can dot it. He can put that 99 where he wants it. And I would say... I've said this before, I think when they brought in Lyles and Gibson, I tend to trust the Rangers with starting pitching as an above average team in terms of figuring it out. Uh, I know Jordan Lyles has been getting smacked around, but uh, Lance Lynn, Mike Miner, some of the success they've had in free agency. I mean, I think some of those principles would apply to game planning with their own prospects that they bring up and guys they trade for. So I, I do see a little bit of extra reason to be optimistic just based on the org with the home park probably being a lot less hitter friendly than the old park in Arlington. Uh, so quite a few things to like about Hernandez in particular. Uh, we've got a few more mailbag questions to get to in just a moment. First, a quick word from one of our sponsors. All right, you know, we've got a bunch of great questions, very specific questions about pitchers. And we'll start with a question from Andy. This is about Dustin May. Uh, he writes, I love the show, especially now that it's three times a week. Thank you, Andy. Uh, question for this week's mailbag. I have Dustin May in a dynasty league at a cheap controllable cost, but I'm wondering if I should be shopping him before our trade deadline on the 31st. I'm particularly wondering where the strikeouts are for a guy with his velocity and movement. The strikeout rate at the big league level is well below average, and even his minor league rate isn't all that great. Can he keep suppressing runs the way he has if the K rate doesn't rise substantially? Basically, I'm wondering if his value could be sneakily at an all-time high right now and if I'd be better off trading him for a big haul. Thanks, guys. So what's the what's the takeaway here with Dustin May? Are the strikeouts coming later or is he almost the more of a what you see is what you get, at least in the short term, with that low K rate? Well, I, I doubt even with that massive sinker that he's got that he's going to continue to put up like 260 BABIPs. So um, I hate to revert to kind of uh, early on pitching analysis, but you know, I don't just looking at his projections, looking at what he's done, looking at his stuff. I don't think he's going to add a lot of strikeouts. I think he'll be a sub eight guy. I think that even with Sixto Sanchez, we're seeing another version of this. Where uh, a changeup first sinker uh, guyer, as Kevin Millar would say, is um, <laughs> is just not going to have the same strikeout rate. You'll get some of it back. Like if you look at Marcus Stroman's career, you'll get some of it back with home run rate, and so they they will have value. But I think like with Marcus Stroman, we just don't we don't have a guy who's done that and been a top five pitcher in the big leagues, maybe since Halliday, 
So that's an extreme outlier. I mean, I'm talking about a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, and I'm calling up his, his stats right now, so I don't tell. Yeah, Halliday. And, and, and like, he's quit pitching in 2013, so it's like, rest in peace, by the way. Um, he was such a great pitcher to watch. But I do think that um, that's, like, what every kind of sinker, changer, guy or wants to end up as. And um, there were seasons where Halliday was not. Uh, a top 10 pitcher. I mean, he in 20, 2007 for the Blue Jays, 3.71 ERA, 5.6 K9. Um, that would be a Stroman-esque type season. Um, and then, then you have to kind of, then the next four or five years were just amazing, just a great run. But just expecting Dustin May to put up like two five ERAs to make up for the fact that he doesn't strike guys out, I think is asking a lot. Especially in an era where you're not going to have guys pitching at the high end of the workload yeah. the same way that Halliday was. Two, I mean, a, 248. That was a different era, but even within that era, those were heavy workloads, often among the league leaders over a full healthy season. Dustin May in Los Angeles with that front office, with that roster build, is not going to be among the league leaders in innings pitched without some significant changes to how he approaches hitters. I would do this, though. He's an exciting enough guy that we're t- we're discussing his flaws. I would trade him, but only if I just got exactly what I wanted. You know what I mean? Like, if only the like world opened up its oyster. You know, like if like if I could like buy in uh, to a really nice young hitter or something. Like maybe if he got me Dylan Carlson plus, you know, or you know, just a, a young hitter that I was extremely excited about. Um, or if I could use Dustin May to build and get Cody Bellinger, you know what I mean? That sort of deal I could do. But if it's just like Dustin May for a couple of veteran pitchers for like Lance Lynn and, uh, uh, Charlie Morton, I'm just throwing it out there, uh, just to like, you know, try and build up for this, the stretch run. I don't know about that. I think I'd rather just keep Dustin May in that case. Yeah. I do, I do think getting what you want is key here, but. I would agree with the idea that Andy had that he might be at a relative peak in value where everybody's still very optimistic about his future, and it's still a bright future, but we might be collectively overestimating what Dustin May is actually going to bring us as fantasy players, and this is a good time to leverage that if you can find the offer that you want. Thanks a lot for the question, Andy. The next question comes from Jared. He wants to know uh, if we could pick between Jose Barrios and Zach Gallen long-term, so thinking keeper or dynasty league, who would we actually prefer? Uh, you like Gallen probably as much as anybody out there, you know, and I might be the high man on Jose Barrios, so we're kind of in, in opposite corners on this argument from the, the jump, if it's even really an argument. I mean, I think they're pretty comparable in, in a lot of ways because – the reason I would like Barrios a little bit better uh, is that I actually believe he's getting to that deeper arsenal. I think we're seeing a little bit of that. We saw the velocity ticking up back in March, and he's at this window right now where the ratios aren't very good. So if you're trying to, to buy a high-quality starting pitcher right now, I think he absolutely could be that guy. But you know, we're seeing a pretty good mix of four different pitches, the curveball at 30% is right in line with where he was last year, and it's getting better results. It seems like that pitch has taken a step forward for Barrios. So that kind of brings up my confidence a little bit. It was an adjustment that uh, I was hoping to see. Love that the velo is up a full tick, almost a mile and a half per hour over last season with him as well. Uh, so it, it's these are two guys that I think are very similar in a lot of ways. I think 
The question I would have for you is, how do they stack up command-wise? Does Gallon actually have better command than Brios, or does Brios have better command? They're surprisingly similar. I think you uh, you might might be surprised to find out that they are both sort of top 10 guys by Command Plus. Um, and I think you've pointed out something about Barrios' curveball, which is he's now learning how to shape it differently uh, to left-handers, so it's not as slurvy. He's, he's developing, and you can actually already see it in the numbers in Brooks, where the horizontal movement when he throws it to lefties is different this year than it was last year. So he's finding a way to kind of do a 12-6 curveball to lefties, which um, that ball, like he can throw that in the outside corner and not worry about it leaking into their happy zone. Um, and I think that could be a big part of why the curveball has better results. Um, that kind of gives you some window into his upside as a possible guy who can vary the curveball. Now, if he has two curveballs he can play, to, can throw along with uh, the changeup and the two fastballs, uh, then, and the fact that their command is very similar, now you're talking about um, uh, two ticks, which is very meaningful over time because he's just starting from a higher, uh, a higher percent, a higher place when he is throwing 95, 96, and Gallon is is averaging 93. Uh, on the other hand, for me, uh, Gallon has a more a wider pitch mix. You know, um, I think cutter curve change. Uh, and even a little bit of a slider poking out this year. Um, that's one, that's one classification. Sorry. This other one, I, I trust pitch info better. Anyway, pitch info has, uh, four seam change up slider curve. Uh, that's four legit pitches, not, not counting the fastball twice, uh, like you might with Barrios. Um, and, uh, it's a power change with a really good slider. So it's kind of, um, pitches. He, I think he command more pitches. Uh, better. I don't think Barrios can really command the changeup that well. Um, and so I'm going to add also demonstrated strikeout results from Gallon that are better than Barrios's. He's got there quicker. Yeah. I totally understand it at this point, like why Gallon would be preferred to Barrios, but th- their similarities are pretty interesting. Yeah. They don't seem that similar. Like you kind of might just look at Barrios and be a like, two pitch pitcher, power pitcher, not great command, but he has great command. And he actually does throw the changeup. And now he's shaping the curveball in two different ways. So, like, he doesn't fit that. And you might look at Gallon and say, oh, finesse pitcher, doesn't have velo, uh, Hunjin Ryu type, four or five commit pitches with command. Except, you know, 93 is is not 90. You know? mm-hmm. um, so it's, uh, they're, they're closer than most people would, would think, I think. Um, I love Barrios, too. I think there's a possibility that Barrios... Uh, is better at price that you might be able to get Barrios for less if you're trying to trade for one of these two pitchers. But if they were both on a platter for me with the same price, I'd take Gallon. Yeah, so if you're in a situation where you're playing like a dynasty league from scratch, you'd choose Gallon over Barrios at this point. I get it. I think the cutter is a big difference. I wish Barrios threw one, actually. Yeah. Give one more weapon against lefties. Get away from the sinker. The sinker thing is probably the one thing that worries me the most about Barrios at this point. I just I don't want sinker guys. I just don't think it works at this point. Uh, thanks a lot for the question, Jared. Uh, question from Ryan about Devin Williams' changeup. Interested in what we think of Devin Williams. He's throwing this unbelievable three-fingered changeup splitter hybrid that has crazy high spin, especially for a changeup, and is simply put him on a map on the map as a potential elite relief pitcher. Curious as to what you think of him and if you've ever seen a changeup like that. 
I'll leave the latter part of that question to you since that's right in your wheelhouse. I mean, I've watched a lot of Devin Williams this year. It looks legit. He's locating where he wants to. He's got fastball and changeup command. He can work up. He can work in. He can work outside. He can work down in the zone. So he's really changing eye levels effectively. And that changeup is pretty much unhittable most days. Like You just can't do much with it. Uh, It's got plenty of movement. I think it looks just like the fastball coming out of his hand, so it's just it's really hard to pick it up. What do you see in terms of movement? Is this pitch as unusual as uh, Ryan believes it is? It is, uh, and it and it does confound research in one way, which is that one thing that I've heard is that it's good to be seventieth uh, percentile in one thing and thirtieth percentile in the other, and the two things are velocity gap or movement differential. And when I'm looking at Devin Williams, I'm seeing a guy who's probably 70th percentile in both. Um, I mean, the changeup drops eight inches more than his four seam. And, uh, uh, and, it dro- and it has four inches more fade than his four seam. And it has an 11 mile, or, 11 mile an hour gap. So there is um, some chance that at some point uh, people pick up that change up that's what i think is is the the risk or the other risk is he can't they pick it up and he can't command it so you know um that's what sort of happened with jarell cotton who had a similar change up in terms of movement and and velocity profile but you've watched him um he can command that change up to an extent i've seen him sort of drop it right below the zone like almost on the black yeah, and I've seen him come back with a fastball in a different part of the zone and dot that exactly where he wants to also. I, I think it's happened for a long enough stretch where I don't see this as like a small sample sort of noise. I don't think it's just a guy with a really good changeup running good. Like, it, it's a nasty pitch. Yeah, around 200 pitches, you can already start talking about whiff rate on a pitch. So 23% whiff rate, uh, 51% swing rate. I mean, they're not laying off that thing. I would say that, you know, he probably doesn't have a great slider. Um, it looks okay but in terms of movement, but it's just not getting good results. Um, and there is a reason he's a reliever. But um, I think they found somebody that can be a late game re- reliever. And now there's these rumors that he Hader might be on the move. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I believe those. It seems like it happens every year. But uh, if Hader is on the move, uh, Williams might be the guy who steps in. I mean, because Kniebel's hurt and, is you know, Freddie Peralta, I guess, could step in. But... You know, they kind of like Freddie Peralta where he is, I think. I think Freddie still fits into the conversation from earlier where because he's working on that third pitch, he could end up starting again at some point in the future. I think if they were to trade Josh Hader, David Phelps, who's on a one-year deal, would be gone too, and Williams would be the next closer. Like, that's just how it would go. Uh, the only It just seems like a low likelihood a, of them trading Hader, right? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be a godfather sort of offer. I, I think that's been the case all along. I don't think it's a we're shopping Hader. I think it's... If someone overwhelms us, we're going to take at twelve it and fifteen. They're still they're like a, a one good series away from being back in the playoffs. Basically, if the Brewers sweep the Reds or take three or four from the Reds to start this week, the Reds might be sellers. And if the Brewers drop the next three to Cincinnati, the Brewers might be sellers. And if they split and the Brewers go into the weekend, they play well against the Pirates. They're probably just going to stand pat for the most part, and maybe tweak a, a roster spot or two and let it ride. I mean, I think you can trade away a couple players and still be in the playoff hunt this year with eight teams in each league getting in. I don't think getting rid of a veteran or two means you're yeah, but the haters. white flag. Hater, haters the kind of guy that's like, if you don't have him in that pen, 
that's a pretty big drop. Part of the brilliance of the Brewers, I think, has been that they win the games that they should win. That's that's why their their run differential hasn't always lined up with their win totals is because I think that the the back end of their bullpen is bad and the front end of their bullpen is really good and they figure out who the front of their bullpen is really quickly and so they win the games they're supposed to win. Right. And then occasionally they they get lucky in certain spots. The offense blows up for a day and the pitching doesn't matter and your bad relievers can come in and protect a seven run lead and you just you're okay. Right. Yeah. But the starting rotation has been better than people would have expected. I think you have four starters now with sub four ERAs entering play on Tuesday. Uh, Thanks a lot for the question, Ryan. I got one more question here from Albie. He wants to know, is Brad Keller the real deal? Keller for a couple of weeks was one of the better available starting pitchers on the waiver wire in most leagues and I looked at him at the time you know I didn't really see anything different than what he was doing a year ago what's your take on Keller is he just sort of a guy kind of a back of the top 75 starter who usually can be in your lineup in deeper mixed leagues or is there something more there because I see that walk rate I see the low K rate it is up compared to the past 21.6 percent to career best for him and I'm still not looking at him as someone who I trust more than in favorable spots. Yeah. I mean, he just, he's a two pitch pitcher. <laughs> he's a two pitch pitcher. I just, I, it takes me, it takes me Lamette to buy into a two pitch pitcher. And I think that Chris Archer is kind of the, the godfather of the two pitch pitcher. What we're seeing out of Keller is against lefties, he's pretty good. He's got a 23% strikeout rate and a 2.9% walk rate. And he's got that fastball and slider, and he can do stuff with it, and he's he's really good. He's got a 2.13 FIP against righties. Guess what? Against lefties, he has a 20% strikeout rate and a 19% walk rate. He has a 4-plus FIP, a 5-plus XFIP against lefties. So basically, he's just trying to let walk the lefties and get the righties out. I just don't think that's a, a sustainable way to get through things. For what it's worth, it's the only thing that bothers me at Randy Dobnak is if you look at what he does against lefties, he's kind of has that Ruggy arm slot, that righty, that righty uh, arm slot to get righties out. And against lefties, he's an extreme contact guy. The one thing that's different between Dobnak and Keller is that Dobnak has like a 65% ground ball rate against lefties. So it's not just walk the lefties, it's walk the lefties or get a ground ball from the lefties and strike out all the righties. That's Dobnak's mm-hmm. approach is a little bit better than Keller's. Yeah, I just I think without that third pitch though, I don't really see those numbers against lefties getting any better. So unless he starts showing that, I don't see Keller as the real deal. I see him as a high threes ERA, low fours ERA guy, middling strikeout rate. Great starts against righty lineups every once in a while, and then and then a bad start just like the one he just had. Yeah, you gotta gotta watch out for the lefty heavy lineups with him in particular. It's almost less about the actual team and more about how their lineup is constructed when it comes to when you'd want to sit him down. The other question that came in from Albie was about Luis Guillorme. Is he going to play himself into a regular role the rest of the season? He is playing quite a bit. I think entering play on Tuesday, he has started seven of the last nine games for the Mets. We're seeing a lot of Robbie Cano at DH, part of the Cespedes opt-out plan. Uh, we are seeing a little less of Andres Jimenez recently, so I, I wonder, is, is this something they're more comfortable with just development-wise with Jimenez, letting Guillaume pick up that extra playing time in the short term? I mean, I was going to... I am here to denigrate Guillaume's <laughs> offense, <laughs> and I meant to, to say that he had no redeeming qualities when it comes to offense, but 
you know, there's a, a whiff of David Fletcher there. He makes a lot of contact, and he has a good eye. So maybe he could have like a 100 ISO and like a 280 average, 340, 350 OBP, and and play a lot. I just think of the the team thinks of him as defensive glue. That's 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 who he sort of strikes me as, and I don't think defensive glue usually um, makes waves in fantasy baseball. I just think his approach is a little more refined than Jimenez's at this point. And Jimenez would have probably been at AAA for most of this yes. season if there were a minor league season. So that is what we're seeing in the playing time. But the Mets could easily just reach a point where they say, let's just play the better guy long term. Let's play Jimenez more. And the role could kind of fall out underneath Guillaume. I think he profiles as um, a glue guy. I think the Fletcher comp, just in terms of playing all over especially, is something that does hold up for him. So I think he's more of an NL-only guy, maybe occasional usage in mixed leagues because I'm not sure he's going to offer enough power or speed to be an asset in most mixed leagues, even with this playing time. Jimenez has some similarities in strikeout rates. Um, maybe maybe he's going to strike out a little bit more than him. Uh, but ever since Jimenez added the leg kick, uh, he's shown a little bit more power upside. And if he can get anywhere close to league average power, Jimenez is going to be the better player because he'll have league average power. Uh, he'll have the same speed. He's more of a shortstop versus um, Guillerme being more of a second second base, third baseman. Um, so, you know, the the ceiling on Jimenez, I think this, I'm just restating what you said. The ceiling on Jimenez is better. Yeah, he's the guy you want long-term for keeper and dynasty purposes. Thanks a lot for the great questions this week. You can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Just be sure to spell out the word and if you go that route on Twitter. He's at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. If you're enjoying the show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, please take a moment to do that. It helps new listeners find our show, which is always good for us. Uh, you know, It's good for the possibility of more rates and barrels and bonus episodes and other cool stuff that we can do in the future. Uh, if you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one at 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Get Eno's articles, get the ads and drops column that we put up every week, get all of our baseball stuff, fantasy baseball, fantasy football, everything you could possibly want, all for one subscription. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.